0: Our scripture passage this evening brings us to 1st Samuel chapter 1 verses 9 through 20. Uh, last week we were introduced to Elkanah and his wife Hannah, this woman who is unable to have children. We saw her situation, we saw her tears, and we saw how she cried out to God. And so now the situation with Hannah continues as we read beginning in verse 9. Would you please stand for the reading of God's word. Hear now the word of God. After they had eaten and drunk in Shiloh, Hannah rose. Now Eli, the priest, was sitting on the seat beside the doorpost of the temple of the Lord. She was deeply distressed and prayed to the Lord and wept bitterly. And she vowed a vow and said, O Lord of hosts, For all along I have been speaking out of my great anxiety and vexation. Then Eli answered, Go in peace, and the God of Israel grant your petition that you have made to him. And she said, Let your servant find favor in your eyes. Then the woman went away and ate, and her face was no longer sad. They rose early in the morning and worshipped before the Lord. Then they went back to their house at Ramah, and Elkanah knew Hannah his wife, and the Lord remembered her. And in due time, Hannah conceived and bore a son, and she called his name Samuel, for she said, I have asked for him from the Lord. Thus ends the reading of God's holy, inspired, and inerrant word. May he lay its eternal truths on our hearts this evening. Let's pray together. Our God, tonight, would you speak to us through the life of Hannah? Would you make us a people who know you intimately? who speak to you directly through your Son, and who aren't bashful to ask you for our deepest needs and for the cries of our heart. It's in Christ's name that we ask it. Amen. You may be seated. I remember once as a kid, I woke up pretty early, and I used to have a contest with myself My bedroom was in the basement, and so my goal was, can I make it to the top of the stairs without making any noise? So we had this old creaky house. It was like 100 years old. And so it was basically an impossible challenge, but I I tried to do it. And I think I remember one morning I got up and I, I actually did pretty good at my challenge. I got to the top of the stairs. I didn't make any noise. And I started creeping through the house. And as I was creeping through the house... I actually could hear someone talking in the living room, and it was my father, and he was, he was speaking animatedly. He was walking back and forth in the living room, and, uh, and he was talking about my mom. He was talking about, about me. He was talking about my brother and my sisters. And it didn't take me very long to, to realize I was walking in on my father as he was praying. And, uh, you know, my father wasn't in the regular stature of praying. He was in the walking around the living room praying kind of a stature. And I just remember it being the sort of prayer that came from a place of deep need. I think he was unconcerned with how things looked. He was unconcerned with appearances. He, he almost, in a sense, didn't care what anybody saw when they came upstairs. And so I, I saw him for a little bit, and I, I really honestly don't think I was intended to hear what he was saying. But I wonder, have you ever heard somebody praying? Have you ever overheard somebody praying? And you realize you weren't supposed to hear it, that this was a prayer that wasn't really meant for you. Well, tonight's passage is that sort of intimate prayer. It's that sort of intimate passage. It's a it's sort of passage that if you really think about what's happening here, you feel a bit like a spy. You feel a bit like a voyeur, someone who is looking in on something they shouldn't be seeing. You know, there are just some sort of uh, sacred things that belong between a person and the Lord. Um, this is a passage that gives us an intimate glimpse into one woman's relationship with her God. Uh, the way she talks to him, the way she begs him for help, the way she so unburdens herself before him that, she, that she's willing to risk embarrassing herself even in front of Eli the priest while he's watching her. She just has hit the point where she just doesn't care. And so in that sense, this is a very special passage. And it's a sweet passage. It really is, even from beginning to end. It begins with a prayerful vow. And this is our outline, by the way. It begins with a prayerful vow. It leads to an honest confession. And then it concludes with a remembered woman. And so from, from top to bottom, tonight's passage is a very sweet reminder to us that our God is so good He is so kind and he loves to pour out blessings on his people, but he does it in his own time and he does it for his own reasons. And so if you're anything like me, you need that reminder tonight. You need that reminder of the sweetness, the goodness and the kindness of our God. And so let's look together. First, we see the prayerful vow in verse 11, Uh, because in verse 11, Hannah has come to the house of the Lord to to pray Uh, By this point in Israel's history, the Ark of the Covenant is being kept in Shiloh, uh, in the tabernacle. And so she comes to the tabernacle. She comes to this tent where the Ark of the Covenant is, and she comes here specifically to pray. And I want to remind you what we saw last week. Hannah is a woman in serious need. She's a woman in deep need. She is deeply helpless. She is deeply desperate, and more than anything else, you probably remember that what she wants is she wants a baby. She has has lived in torment. She's lived in embarrassment. She's lived in sorrow. She she weeps. She skips meals. She, She prays and fasts. She lives every minute in serious need and absolute helplessness, and she knows it. And the first thing I want you to see about Hannah's prayer is that helplessness. It is that neediness. Just listen to the sense of need of this woman. She says, "O Lord of hosts, if you will indeed look on the affliction of your servant and remember me and not forget your servant, but will give to your servant a son, then I will give him to the Lord all the days of his life, and no razor shall touch his head. Is a prayer that comes out of sorrow, right? Charles Spurgeon was very fond of saying, there is no book in a person's library that is more valuable than the book of suffering, uh, that God opens in each of our lives. And our world is necessarily a theological place because it is God's place. But suffering especially makes theologians of all of us one way or another. And Hannah's pain has had that impact on her life. Because as she's talking to him, the very first way she addresses him is with this term. She calls him Lord of Hosts. And the Hebrew name for Lord of Hosts here is Yahweh Sabaoth. Yahweh Sabaoth. And if you remember, if you've sung A Mighty Fortress is Our God enough times, which we certainly have. We're a Reformed church. We sing it uh, at least every few months. It has to be sung. And if you're really Reformed, you have it memorized, and you don't need to hold the hymnal when you sing it. But you remember that line, perhaps, towards the end where it says, Lord, Sabaoth his name from age to age the same, and he must win the battle. And, you know, Lord, Sabaoth is the part that we stumble on. We're like, how do we say that every time? It's Hebrew. Well, when you call him Yahweh Sabaoth, when you call him Yahweh of hosts, it's like you're calling him Yahweh, commander of the heavenly armies. It's like, you're, it's like you're saying he is the one who controls all things. He is all powerful. It's like you're remembering and in essence, you're praying to God, remembering that he has the ability to keep his promises and he has the ability to do what you're praying for. And so she does that. She calls him Yahweh of hosts, Lord of hosts. By the way, this is a name that she gives God. That we don't find anywhere in Scripture chronologically prior to this. So, in other words, this is the first time in Scripture that we know of someone calling him Yahweh Sabaoth, Lord of Hosts. And so, even the way she addresses God tells us that she has suffered, and in her suffering, she's seen a glimpse of the sovereignty of God, the freedom of God, the ability of God to do this prayer. If he will, she's seen all of these things and she knows this about herself. She is powerless. He is the Lord of hosts. She is just a humble, helpless woman. And he's the all powerful one who commands the heavenly armies. She has no ability to open her womb and give herself children. And he is the one who can take and give life as he sees fit. She's learned this in the midst of her suffering. So what does she do? She prays, and as she prays, she gives up her right to this child. If this was ever about her, if this was ever about her ego and her abilities as a woman and and, and what she wants, well, we know that that's not what's happening here. That's not what drives her with this prayer. This is not about her anymore. This is not about what she wants. She says, I will give him to the Lord all the days of his life, and no razor shall touch his head. And so, in essence, she 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 prays this prayer and she says, God, if you will do this, he won't be my son, he'll be your son. And she vows a Nazarite vow for him from an early age. So so her plan is: I will give God's gift right back to him, and he will belong to God, not to me, he won't be my boy. So notice this. This isn't about bargaining with God. It isn't about manipulating God so she can get what she wants because she doesn't get what she wants. She doesn't get to keep him. When Hannah vows to give Samuel to the Lord, what she's doing is she's not only giving the gift back, she's protecting herself from an idol. Can you think of someone more in a position to idolize their child than someone who's in Hannah's position? And what she does when she gives her child back is she is protecting herself from this idol, this child that she could be tempted to spend her life sort of hovering over and centering herself around. And she's also doing something else. She's showing that she has deeper motives than just getting what she wants from God. See, this isn't about Hannah. This isn't about the idol of motherhood. It is, this is about justice from her suffering. It's about Proving the almighty power of God and and showing that he's faithful to do what he promises. In asking for this gift, there is a danger. Whenever we ask God for a gift, there's a danger that that gift, if given, will turn into an idol for us. Especially if it's something that we have yearned for for a very long time. Whether um, it's a single person who wants to be married... Um, whether it's someone who's spent a long time chasing after a career. Anything can become an idol if we want it badly enough. And Hannah wants this child very badly. And so she gives them to the Lord. And in that sense, she's a model for, for all Christian parents. I, I want to show you three ways that she's a model. First, Hannah shows us that children are to be valued. Children are to be valued. Um... I don't have to illustrate this. I don't have to try hard to illustrate this. I didn't have to do much research at all when I was thinking of exactly what I would say here. But I will simply point this out. Children are not very much valued in our society. Um, 3,000 children a day are killed in our nation by abortion alone. Uh, those who don't abort their children go to great efforts to keep them from being born through contraception. Um, I'm not saying it's wrong. I'm just saying People are showing that they don't want children when they do it. How we value children is a measure of our virtue as a people. Because think about this. Children can't do anything for us, right? They, they can't get us ahead in life. They can't give us a job. They can't put money in our pockets. The only real value, the only reason we value a child is because of who they are. There's nothing that they can give you. And so when we love a child, we're just loving a child because they're a child. And what's happening is, and this is happening more, it seems like, in younger circles, but still people in our day more and more view children as obstacles to happiness and obstacles to, to joy instead of as the great mission and purpose of adult life. Um, and so people have less children, um, You know, we live in a time where even in the South, people look at our family of six and think, man, they must be Roman Catholics or they must be Mormons or something like that. Um, I'm not saying it's a sin to only have one or two kids or, or no kids. But I would say this, if our lack of children comes from intentionality based on seeing children as obstacles, then... We've missed the thing that Hannah shows us about children, which is that children are to be valued. Children are to be wanted. They're to be desired. We should want to have our quiver filled with arrows, the scripture says. And to be honest, even even if you go outside of the spiritual realm of our motivations for that, from a social perspective, it's deeply destructive. You can look at cultures where there is a negative birth rate like Japan. And right now in Japan, people are designing, they are designing robots that are intended to turn elderly folks over in the, uh, the hospital to keep them from getting bed sores. And the reason for this is because they anticipate and they know that when many of those who are young right now are elderly, they will not have anyone to care for them because they have a negative birth rate. And so low birth rates are not a blessing for a society. In fact, in Scripture... A low birth rate is a sign of God's curse upon a people. And, you know, we, we, we see this a lot. When we went to Portland, I don't know if we saw any kids, uh, maybe a couple of children. Um, we saw grown children on the subways uh, talking about playing video games together and things like that. But I'm not sure if I saw any small children, uh, maybe a couple. Um, But more and more, our culture values children less and less. And and that's ironic because we also live in a culture that worships youth. Isn't that interesting? It's like we want youth on the other hand and we don't want it on the other, on one hand. But Hannah, she shows us that children are valuable and that we need them. So they're our future. They are our future in the culture. They are our future, especially in the church. Second, Hannah shows us that children are to be discipled. Um, What does Hannah do? She dedicates her son to the Lord. She determines before she is even born, this child will serve God all his life. And she says he will keep a Nazarite vow and he's never going to know a day. This is her plan. He will never know a day when he did not walk with the Lord. In other words, her plan is this is a covenant child. Parents, if, if all you want for your children is for them to be financially successful and independent and to have a good career or a job that they love, you aren't aiming high enough. You aren't aiming high enough. If we if we want our children to have all of those things, but we don't care if they know God, if they gain the whole world, but they forfeit their soul, then, then we haven't heard the message of Hannah. Because Hannah is setting her son on course for a life of poverty. She's setting her son on course for a life of temple service. She would rather have that for her son. It would be better for our children to live in poverty, but constant rest and always knowing God, than for them to live in an expensive home in the nicest city and yet live with God at arm's length like Eli and his sons do. What are your hopes for your children? What's your desire for your children? Are you training them up in the way that they should go? Are you reading scripture with them? Are you teaching them what's the most important thing in life? Because whatever that thing is, whatever the message they hear, this is the most important thing in life. They will leave our homes and they will have us to thank for their convictions. And this message goes doubly for us at our, as, a, as a church. We must value our children. We must protect our children. We must disciple the children of our church. If we do not make them a high priority, then we fail to follow the example of Hannah. And so first we see this evening Hannah's prayerful vow. Second, tonight we see an honest confession. We see this in verse 15. Eli overhears Hannah, actually he doesn't overhear her, he oversees her, and he almost seems confused by what he's seeing. This is a woman who's pouring her her heart out before God, but his response is to blame this on strong drink. She gives an impassioned response to him when he says as much, because he's accusing her of public drunkenness. Listen to what she says, she says, No, Lord, I am a woman troubled in spirit. I have drunk neither wine nor strong drink but I have strength but I've been pouring out my soul before the Lord do not regard your servant as a worthless woman for all along I have been speaking out of my great anxiety and vexation So Hannah makes this honest confession she speaks her heart she is so broken down by the events in her life that she doesn't even care about keeping up appearances even before this priest. Um, being a preacher is kind of funny because if you're ever sitting next to someone on the airplane and they find out you're a preacher, they definitely treat you different. Um, you know, they'll be friendly to you. And, um, and, and folks in church tend to kind of be this way as well. They want you around. Um, but there are folks who do live their life one way. And then they want you as the preacher to see them living their life that way. And then they they sort of have this other part of their life that they sort of keep to themselves and they don't want you to see. Um, And there's almost this fear, you know, if I'm real before this person, then something bad is going to happen to me. Um, And I wouldn't be surprised at all if it was like that in Israel, especially when it comes to the priests. Uh, I wonder if the people of Israel behave themselves more around Eli and around the priests and when they're near the tabernacle than they do in the other parts of their life. But, but Hannah is so broken down that she doesn't even care. You know, she's like the, the woman who comes to the preacher and says, my life is a mess, it's never been worse, I don't really care what you think of me and I don't really care what anyone else thinks of me either. Now, I'm a northerner. Those are the kind of people I like. I like just honesty, even if it hurts your feelings. I I kind of enjoy that, you know. Um, But but in this woman's brokenness and sorrow, she is closer to God than the put-together, well-behaved Eli will ever be. Because she's willing to admit the mess that is her life. And then Eli, he's he's over here, and and we see Eli, and he seems to be so distant from God. Think about this. In the passage, Hannah calls God Yahweh seven times, and you can tell that she calls him Yahweh every time you see Lord in all capital letters. So you see Hannah calling him Lord, 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 over and over again, Yahweh is God's special name. It is his name. It is his covenant name. It's the name he told Israel to call him specifically. Now the Canaanites didn't call God or any of their gods Yahweh. Yahweh is like his it's like his his name. It's like his proper name. There's no other nation in all the earth that was told to call God Yahweh. It is Israel alone. It is his special name, it's his covenant name, name. And so to use that name was as if to say, "You are my God." And so this is a woman who, when she thinks of God, she thinks of him by his name. She calls him by his name. But notice this about Eli. Eli speaks a lot in our passage, and he uses a different name for God. He just calls him God. He calls him the God of Israel. He has sat in the presence of the ark of God. He has lived his life as a religious man, and yet his sons don't seem to know God. He doesn't seem to know what prayer is. And he seems to see God as just so distant that he talks about him the way that you and I might talk about a piece of news or something that happens somewhere. If you sit in the house of the Lord long enough, there's a danger of becoming overly familiar with the things of God. And we can forget not only is he God, but we can forget that he is our God. He isn't just the creator, but he is my creator. He isn't just another chore. He's the one who Who loves us? He's the one who draws us, who rescues us, who saves us, who secures us, who sets his love on us. He's the God of the universe who, even at this moment, is keeping the stars in their heavenly paths, and yet he loves me. This is not a God to just be observed or reported on. He's a God to be loved because he first loved us. And Hannah knows this. And Eli, with all of his years and experience, seems to have forgotten it or he needs to learn it. And so Hannah cries out to God. She cries out in a way that reflects her pain and reflects her need. And when she does, Eli sees it. I think any priest with a lick of sense would know what prayer looks like. Um, he doesn't live in Bluetooth land yet, where people are talking to themselves, walking around talking to themselves, or do you think they're talking to you? And then, oh, it turns out they have a headset in. Um, that's not this time. Here is this woman. She is over here, her lips are moving. She is in prayer. And, and Eli is this priest who doesn't seem to know what prayer looks like. He almost has this blindness to spiritual things. In fact, in a couple of chapters, God is going to, speak, to El- speak and Eli won't even hear it. He'll need a little kid to tell him what God has said. He may be wise in the world's eyes. He may even be experienced in the routine of religion. But he seems to have no real experience of God nor would he know a real intimacy with God if it was happening right in front of him, which it was. And so it just so happens that's exactly what's taking place. He watches this woman's lips as they move. He, he sees her emotion. He sees her, her need. He sees her tears. He see, sees her sorrow. And he has no idea what he's seeing. One of the things that comes through here, and sometimes people make the mistake of thinking the Bible is a sexist book that just takes all of the men and makes heroes out of them and takes the women and makes villains out of all of them. And yet we see that completely playing against the the stereotype here because it turns out the Bible doesn't just portray men as spiritual heroes and women as temptresses or foolish people. Um, That's a character the world makes of the Bible. But look at what, what God does here in 1 Samuel. He gives us Hannah and he gives us Eli. He gives us these two people who are so different. You've got Hannah on the one hand who knows her God. She has a vibrant spiritual life. She has lived every moment by God's grace. She cries out to him in her need. She cries out for help. And then you have Eli on the other other hand, a man who just doesn't. This is an obvious application, but being a man doesn't mean being more spiritual. (laughs) Being a man does not make us closer to God. Being a man doesn't make us more valuable to God. And we see that here tonight, don't we? Hannah knows God and Eli doesn't. And even if I'm picking too much on Eli, maybe I need to give Eli the benefit of the doubt. The text tells us later that his sons certainly don't. So even if Eli is a fine fellow, his sons certainly aren't, even though they're men. Eli is a spiritual leader who can't, Tell the difference between a heartfelt prayer and drunken rambling. No wonder Israel was in a spiritual crisis. Hannah gives this honest confession. She says, I have been pouring my soul out before Yahweh. Heartfelt confession. That's the second point. Third this evening, we see the remembered woman. After her prayer, after her confession, Eli Gives her a priestly benediction. He says, go in peace and the God of Israel grant your petition that you have made to him. Eli gives this response. We don't know if it comes from the heart. We don't know if it's a rote rote response. We don't know if this is something he always said to people who who prayed. But Hannah is content with Eli's response. Look what happens. Um, uh, she, She gives her confession. She leaves his presence And then in verses 19 and 20, it says, And Elkanah knew Hannah, his wife, and the Lord remembered her. And in due time, Hannah conceived and bore a son, and she called his name Samuel, for she said, I have asked for him from the Lord. And so as we we see here, God gives Hannah the thing that she has poured her soul out for. And here's the beauty of the way the passage says it, though. It says, The Lord remembered her. The passage calls him Yahweh, the same name she has been calling him by. And she's been saying over and over again, Yahweh, Yahweh, Yahweh. Who remembers her? Yahweh remembered her. Now, it doesn't mean that he had forgotten her. It doesn't mean that every moment before he answered her prayer, he didn't remember her. It just means that he decides... He's going to remember his promise to Israel to be fruitful and multiply them. And what does he do? He keeps that promise and he keeps it to her. Now, here's the thing about prayer. God always answers prayer. He doesn't always give us the the answer that we want. If you have prayed and prayed for something that is, is good and righteous and he hasn't given it, it isn't a sign That God hasn't remembered you. It isn't a sign that God has forgotten you. There are many women who have prayed similar prayers to what Hannah prays. And and they didn't get the answer that Hannah got. Does that mean that woman was forgotten by God? No, no. Because God always answers our prayers in the way that he knows is best. And, And sometimes he answers prayers in the way that we didn't want him to. And if you have lived long enough as a believer, then you can think of in your life prayers that you have prayed to God and he didn't give you the answer that you wanted. And we may not always see it, but he does it from his kindness. He does it from his love and he does it from his wisdom, whether we realize it or not. And hopefully we do, at least with time and age. Even if God didn't give her what she asked for, her prayers wouldn't have been wasted As well, because prayer does something to us. Because pouring her heart out to God, it did something. It drew her near to the heart of God. She understood Him better. Um, After all, she's the first one that we know of to call Him Lord of hosts. Her prayer gave her a knowledge of God that, in a sense, only really comes from suffering and unburdening ourselves to God. And so, what does God do in Hannah's life? He uses it. change her. And he uses prayer to change us as well. God also uses our prayer to change our situations. We see that here as well. See, in in this case, he remembers her prayer and he answers her prayer and he does it with a resounding yes. And she sleeps with her husband and she becomes pregnant. Now, on the one hand, things in this life only happen the way that God decides they will happen. On the other hand, God uses means to accomplish the thing that he's going to do. And so what we see here is that God uses our prayers to do this. Now, here's here's what I want to get at, and I want to be specific with this situation. God decreed before the foundation of the world that he was going to answer Hannah's prayer, but he had always decreed that she would first pray before he would answer And what this means is quite straightforward. There may be things that you need that God will not give you if you don't pray. You ever wonder what sort of prayers God would answer in your life if you would just ask him? James reminds us, he says, you do not have because you do not ask. He's talking about praying to our God. You do not have because you do not ask. Hannah received, and part of the reason she received was because she asked, what are the things that you should ask God for, but you don't? Either you don't have the faith to ask it, you don't have the gumption to ask it, um, or it just never occurred to you that you could ask him for it. And our prayers don't have to be complex. They don't have to be fancy. Our, our, our prayers don't have to be full of theological acrobatics and amazing shows of knowledge and piety. We don't have to have half the Bible memorized to pray this kind of prayer before God. What we do need to do is put ourselves before the face of God or we'll never find the peace that we need. Notice this about Hannah as well, especially as we close her heart is cheered by prayer and it's cheered by the blessing of God. And notice this, she is cheered before her prayer is answered. See, she becomes pregnant in verse 19, but look at verse 18 before she becomes pregnant. Then the woman went her way and ate and her face was no longer sad. So think about this. For her, there's no need to wait for the circumstances to change before she's uplifted by God. She entrusts herself to God, and her face is no longer sad, before her prayer is answered. And what this means is that in prayer to God, she finds peace and she finds joy, not in having her prayer answered. Prayer is not complicated. The the reality is all we have to do is speak to God, remember who he is, and remember what it is that we really need. And when we do that, we'll find the same God who remembered Hannah will remember us as well. And when we do that, when we open our hearts before God, when we pray to him, when we unburden ourselves, when we tell him what it is that we really need from the heart, we will be able to conclude this just like the psalmist does. I love the Lord because he has heard my voice and my pleas for mercy to pray our God we often forget that you are a God who hears us when we pray you hear our pleas for mercy you you love us you remember us you answer our prayers in kindness and goodness and wisdom and sometimes in your wisdom your answer to our prayer is a no And we ask that you would give us hearts that love you and trust you enough to receive your answers to prayer, even when it isn't the answer we wanted. We ask you to change us through prayer. Like Hannah, God, give us a familiarity with you in our prayer such that we can say truly that we know you, love you, and trust you, even with our deepest hurts. It's in Christ's name that we pray.